Welcome, listeners, to the 33rd chapter of the QAnon Anonymous podcast, the Mob versus QAnon episode. As always, we are your hosts, Jake Rokitansky, Julian Fields, and Travis View. This week, we are bringing you the best showdown since Alien vs. Predator. We've got wise guys going up against not-so-wise guys. First, we'll start by giving you some background on the mysterious shooting of Francesco Frankie Boy Kelly, current NYC boss of the Gambino family. I wrote that wrong, I guess. Ex-NYC <laughs> boss of the Gambino family uh, because he was shot by a self-professed QAnon follower. Then Travis is going to explore the theory that the mafia was behind the assassination of JFK, which is a theory that has come up in QAnon circles. After which, QAnon minstrel and beat poet Jake Rokitansky has unearthed a non-fictional absolutely real treasure that is going to shed some light on this mob and QAnon mess. Finally, we will say goodbye, and you will thumb through your phone aimlessly for about half an hour, before lazily staring at a semi-nude photo of a former colleague on Instagram. Honestly, we're not judging. We think they're cute, too. Uh, speaking of semi-nude, Travis View will now kick off the episode with a little segment we like to call... QAnon news. First up, I have some uh, QAnon mainstreaming news. Trump retweets a tweet from a QAnon Twitter account, and Fox News features a large QAnon account. On Sunday, March 17th, President Trump, not for the first time, retweeted a tweet from a pro QAnon Twitter account. If we're counting quote tweets, this would actually mark the fourth time that this has happened. However, this is the first time Trump retweeted an account with a Q in the AVI, and where we go one, we go all in the bio. Um, unsurprisingly, many in the QAnon community found this very validating. The same day, however, Trump retweeted uh, Jack Posobiec twice, who notably is very much anti-QAnon. Uh, did the QAnon community take the Posobiec tweets as a sign that Trump is disconfirming QAnon? Of course not, since QAnon is essentially a giant game of Calvin Ball and they make up all the rules as they go along, they feel no obligation to keep their reasoning consistent. QAnon also got a mainstream boost from Fox News on uh, March 22nd during a segment on uh, Fox and Friends First about recent executive order. Fox News reporter Carly Shimkus brought up a tweet from QAnon account QAnon76 and read it as evidence of, of people's support of President Donald Trump. The tweet itself didn't reference QAnon, but the uh, QAnon community also took that as a mainstream endorsement of QAnon. So wait a second. Why are these people, why are they doing it? I Fox mean, and Friends first? Is that like a play on America first? No, this this was, this is like the pre-show to Fox and Friends. There's like, oh. yeah, but there's, there's a segment called Fox and Trends and where they, where oh they, so they bring God. up tweets. This anchor just brought up this QAnon account. There was like, oh, we love Trump. I forget what it said, but it said like, we love Trump's executive order because free speech is important and stuff. It's and almost like Trump will retweet anything that seems positive about him and doesn't ever check into yeah, anything. Yeah, it's like it's like it's just it's just irrelevant what the source is. One day like. Adolf Hitler will go on Twitter and be like, "Trump, you're amazing," and he'll just retweet it because he just doesn't understand anything and doesn't you know study history. How, how could you not know? I see. I'm in the camp that like Fox and and Trump know exactly what they're doing. Uh, I, I think they. I how yeah, could they not know? I know. I mean, how could they not? It is. It is. I feel like the yeah. They've got to know. They've got to know. They've got to know. In like seventy six. I mean, he's one of the big. He's one of the big yeah. boys. Yeah, they must know QAnon is a thing. And if they're retweeting or if they're putting it up on the board and the there's the at QAnon yeah. seventy six, like they have to see that. Yes. Uh, but I, I wouldn't put it past them to be so incompetent that that just slipped in. That is true. Yeah, I actually yeah. I was at a party uh, the other night, uh, which I may or may not be still hungover. 
and I may or may not uh, have written my piece uh, while uh, fully blacked out. So. <laughs> Uh, fully blacked out. Um, Again, worried about your health that this podcast might be contributing to, you know. And uh, I asked people if they knew about QAnon, and nobody had any idea. What, like, nobody had any idea what it was. And Jake with a, what torn, it was about. with a torn shirt on a street corner, screaming at people <laughs> drunkenly. Do you know what QAnon is? One thing that I love here is, you know, they keep waiting for him to do some hand motion or, like, say something. Is it not enough to just straight up retweet big QAnon accounts? Yeah, they, for them, that should be all the proof they need. They, they should yeah. now be able to move, move on to on. the next stage. Move on no. to the next stage as opposed to yeah. convincing us that QAnon is real. <laughs> yeah, but they're, yeah, again, they're, they're just terminally in this state of like, it's real, yeah. for sure, for sure, it's real. Even though they get, it. They, they do, it's almost like, okay, so the, the flimsy proofs, that's something that they hang on to, right? But yeah. in this case, they have less flimsy proofs and they don't really seem to you know, use it and just be like, okay, we've determined this is done. Now let's move to the next stage to figure out what, if what he's saying you know, can hold water. Listen, all of their plans just involve posting more. So yeah, that's it's, true, it's, actually. It's, it's, it's irrelevant whether or not it's confirmed for them or not. Fuck, they're so much like us. <laughs> My next story, uh, South Carolina State Representative endorses QAnon. And uh, this is reported by Will Sommer at the Daily Beast. Uh, South Carolina State Representative Lynn Bennett, a Charleston Republican, posted support for QAnon on Facebook. She called uh, one QAnon post a gem and another interesting. She vouched for 30 backers saying they're legit and used the QAnon phrase panic in D.C. in two separate posts. Uh, this is probably the most uh, the highest elected official to endorse QAnon so far because there have been like three or four. And yeah. And I've lost count. Jesus. Well, one of them was just not even part of the Trump thing. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> they kind of decried her. However, after the Daily Beast article was published, uh, Lynn Bennett told a local paper, the Post and Courier, quote, I am not a follower of QAnon, end quote. She told the paper that she dismissed QAnon because none of the predictions about the Mueller probe were coming true and that uh, QAnon was not a reliable source. Mm, okay. So, so, so once it was in the paper. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I have to say the Daily Beast literally hung a big black Q around her face. There we go. This defines you entirely yeah. as, a, as a person. Scarlet yeah. Letter. Yeah, Scarlet you have been Q. branded with a Q. Your family will stop calling. <laughs> <laughs> Founder of 8chan expresses regret in the wake of the New Zealand massacre. In an interview with the Wall Street Journal, Frederick Brennan, a.k.a. Hot Wheels, expressed remorse over creating 8chan. Brennan, a former Brooklynite who cut ties with the site in December, said he believes 8chan's administrators were too slow to remove the posts last week from uh, the Christchurch New Zealand shooter and posts on the site's uh, message boards that incite violence. The reluctance to do so, along with the proliferation of posts on 8chan praising the terrorist actions, have persuaded Brennan that the toxic white supremacist culture that lives on parts of the site could someday be linked to another mass shooting. Damn, he's a genius. I know. He said from his home in the Philippines, quote, it was very difficult in the days that followed to know I had created that site. It wouldn't surprise me if this happens again. And so, so after your site was accused of like basically fostering white supremacy and pedophilia, you handed your site over to a boomer pig farmer yep. who, you know, was a racist piece of shit in and of himself. Yep. And then you're like, oh man, how did this happen? <laughs> I don't understand. This pig farmer just doesn't have the, mora the moral framework that I expected. The history of the Frankie Boy murder. So Anthony Camello is a 24-year-old from Staten Island, New York. 
On February 21st, 2019, he shows up to a federal courthouse in Lower Manhattan and asks to make a citizen's arrest of Adam Schiff and Maxine Waters, two Democratic politicians from California. They obviously did not accommodate his request. That would be amazing, though, if some, like, rando showed up, like, a 24-year-old showed up, and then he left with both of them in, <laughs> <laughs> that would, in chains, that you know? That would be pretty impressive. Just, like, the press comes, and it's just like, that's right, I got him. He, so, gets, he gets back to his house, he's like, um, I guess you guys can stay in my room for now, uh... <laughs> he, has to, he has to jail them at his house, yeah, like, at his family house. It becomes like a prisoner's scenario where yeah. he like has them in some weird cell in the wall. And he's just starving them and you know shooting stuff through like the little slit. He's like bringing in a tray with like you know a bowl of Fruit Loops or whatever, like every you know couple hours. And he's like, "All right, eat." He orders Adrenochrome online because he thinks that's all they eat, and just <laughs> keeps shoving this little powder. Yeah, he orders it uh, from uh, Peter Thiel's company. So. You know, before leaving, obviously without those Democrats in chains, uh, Camelo speaks with the police briefly. They later tell the New York Times, quote, These were rambling statements. He wanted to make a citizen's arrest of Maxine Waters, Congressman Schiff. He blamed Nancy Pelosi and all kinds of other people for stealing the midterm elections. So the next day, uh, Camelo tries again, uh, this time to make a citizen's arrest of Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York. He is told again that this will not be possible. <laughs> Less than a month later, on March 13th, Anthony Camello drives his gray GMC Sierra pickup truck over to a house in Todd Hill, Staten Island. It is just past 9 p.m. He drives his pickup into a Cadillac Escalade SUV parked in one of the driveways there, causing its license plates to detach and fall to the ground. Anthony then exits his vehicle, picking up the license plate. The front door of the home opens, and 53-year-old Francesco Cali walks out, understandably upset by the incident. Anthony hands in the license plate and then produces a 9mm handgun, which he uses to shoot Francesco 10 times. Now, before we continue, I'd like to give you a bit of background on Francesco Cali, who wasn't just a rando. In fact, he was known as Frankie Boy by his entourage. Frank is born in New York City on March 26, 1965. Both of his parents are Sicilian natives, and Frank's father runs a household goods store in Palermo and a video store in Brooklyn. At the time, police suspect Frank's father of having mafia connections because he is partnered with a guy who is allied with a Sicilian mob boss called Gaetano Badalamenti. Frank Cali, in fact, is the nephew-in-law of John Gambino. As a young man, Frank becomes friends with Jackie D'Amico, who worked for John Gotti, also of the Gambino family. D'Amico, who went by the nickname Jackie the Nose, took Frank under his wing. Our boy eventually gets married to Rosaria Inzario, whose family is part of the Gambinos. Side note, the Inzerios had to flee Sicily after they lost the Second Mafia War against the Corleones of Godfather fame. By January of 1997, the FBI tells Italian authorities that Frank Cali has been formally folded into the Gambino family. He is only 32 years old. When D'Amico becomes acting boss, he promotes Frank to acting capo. Uh, that's just the kind of captains in the mob. At the time, Cali runs a group of import-export companies out of Brooklyn, fronts for his less savory activities. Frank becomes the point person on the American side when Sicilian mafiosi travel to New York to talk shop. The Italian authorities warn that Frankie Boy is now part of the Sicilian Cosa Nostra. On the New York side, there are five prominent families, Bonanno, Colombo, Gambino, Genovese, and Lucese. Their activities are focused on racketeering, drug trafficking, loan sharking, extortion, and murder. In 2003, Cali and his fellow capo, Leonard Di Maria, start working with a dude called Joseph Volaro, who runs a trucking and contracting outfit. 
Valaro was in charge of building a NASCAR speedway on Staten Island, which uh, was never built, and in the process he siphons tens of thousands of dollars to Frankie Boy and others. It is unclear whether this was extortion or a voluntary collaboration. Either way, Valaro grows very wealthy and is more than willing to do his own fair share of crimes. In 2004, he is arrested with two kilos of cocaine and indicted for allegedly running a large-scale drug trafficking operation. He faces life in jail. So he makes a deal to become an undercover informant within the Gambino family. Four years later, the Rico case is ready. By that point, Valaro is in so deep with the Gambinos that he is on the verge of becoming a made man. Instead, his informing leads to mass arrests in 2008. The entire top brass of the Gambino family is charged with racketeering, over 40 people, including Francesco Frankie Boy Cali and his boss John Jackie the Nose D'Amico. Fucking love those names. That year, Valaro enters the witness protection program and begins legal proceedings, asking for $600,000 of restitutions from various members of the Gambino family. Fucking amazing. Guy gets arrested with two Ks of coke and does clear crimes, then he's like, I'm gonna sue my uh, former employer for not paying? <laughs> <laughs> Fittingly, 2008 is the year of the rat on the Chinese Zodiac calendar. The charges end up being flimsy, and Frankie Boy is out of prison the next year. Many remark that his ascension within the Gambino family has been particularly free of arrests or trouble until that 2008 incident. By 2012, after his uncle John Gambino is promoted to the ruling panel of the family, Frank becomes the new Gambino family underboss. By August 2015, he is the acting boss. So how does Frankie Boy rule the family? Well, a few years later, on September 29th, 2018, Brad Hamilton writes an article for the New York Post entitled, The New Mafia is Wising Up and Keeping Quiet. One passage reads, quote, Callie, 53, who lives in Staten Island and has deep ties to Sicilian wise guys, infused the family with zips, hoodlums from the old country, and bulked up its heroin and Oxycontin business. But he avoids regular sit-downs with his capos, a tradition John Gotti embraced, preferring to communicate less frequently with a select few of his top people. End quote. It's worth mentioning that Frank was not a fan of John Gotti, who he considered too flamboyant and high profile. He did, after all, earn himself the title of Dapper Don. Either way, Gotti dies in jail from throat cancer in 2002, so he's out of the picture when Frank ascends to the throne in 2015. Okay, let's get back to March 13th, 2019. It's just past 9pm, and Frankie Boy has been shot several times in his own driveway. He attempts to crawl behind his car for cover. Anthony Camello does not botch the murder. Frank is later declared dead at Staten Island University Hospital. The police find a fingerprint on Frank's SUV and track Camello's phone to locate him in the city of Brick, New Jersey, where he's hiding out at a family member's place. Is New Jersey just so fucking boring people have to call the cities like Brick and like Turd? <laughs> he confesses soon after and is held at the New Jersey Ocean County Jail. There are rumors that Camello was angry with Frank Callie because the man forbade his niece to date him. The police seem skeptical. Quote, we do not believe this is a random act. We are well aware of Mr. Callie's past. That will be part of the investigation as we determine the motive. They suspect that Frank's proclivity for bringing Sicilian natives to New York earned him the ire of other members in the Gambino family. They even speculate that Gene Gotti, released from jail six months ago, had wanted to reclaim his brother's crown. They do not suspect the Cross family hit as that kind of thing hadn't happened since the mob wars of the 1930s. When informed about the police's Gotti theory, John Gotti Jr. told the New York Post, quote, I wonder if these tremendously insightful law enforcement individuals are going to issue an apology. <laughs> From the New York Post article, quote, told of Jr.'s remarks, one law enforcement source said, quote, Tell Jr. we will apologize once his family apologizes to the Castellano, Lino, and Johnson families and all the other families whose relatives they killed and got away with. 
So why are we even discussing this story? Isn't this podcast about conspiracy theories, post-truth, and more specifically, QAnon? Well, on Monday the 18th of March 2019, Anthony Camello attends a court appearance. On his palm, the young man has scrawled several slogans in blue big pen. He eagerly displays them to reporters. Quote, United we stand, MAGA forever, and patriots in charge. What's more, at the center of his palm is a large letter Q. In the court photos, it is difficult to distinguish what is written below it, but it certainly appears to say Q sent me. This is a common QAnon slogan used to troll their targets or simply celebrate the movement. Patriots in charge also appears to be a variant on another common QAnon idiom, Patriots in control. On Tuesday the 19th of March, Francesco Calli is buried at Moravian's Hillview Mausoleum. One of Frank's associates pays for the burial with $45,000 in cash. A Staten Island, I, I love that, I just, he has a small briefcase of cash that I brought to the mausoleum. <laughs> a Staten Island Live article states, quote, Though Callie was described as a low-key mob figure who liked to be under the radar, the mausoleum stands tall, looking down at the rest of the cemetery, fitting for a boss. I, I love that these kinds of articles can't help but just fucking show that they love it. They yeah, love it they all. Love they the think, oh man, the Sopranos. Yeah. Yeah. Continuing in the article. Quote, white roses put in front of Callie's tomb after the burial were gone by Thursday and a white sticker indicating Callie's name and the years of his birth and death had been removed, making his grave impossible to detect for visitors. He isn't the only mob boss who rests invisibly at the cemetery. Hmm. The same article states that the police had found no link between Camello and organized crime. They say they are pursuing various leads, including the possibility that Camello was simply a, quote, mob-obsessed conspiracy theorist. Hmm. hmm. What do you know? On Wednesday, the 21st of March, in an interview with the Daily News, Camelo says the following, You shouldn't believe in stories. Don't believe in fairy tales. When asked if this means he isn't responsible for the shooting, Camelo answers, I don't need to clear my name. Have a good night. Be careful going home. After sitting there silently for a moment, Camelo leaves the reporter with one last statement. I can't talk to no press. I can't. Here is an excerpt from Ali Watkins' New York Times article on Camelo. Quote, Anthony Camello was known as an aimless young man on his family's block in Staten Island, where he lived in his parents' house. He believed in far-right conspiracy theories, had an Oxycontin habit, and could be aggressive when he was high, people who knew him said. He experimented in high school with drugs, two former classmates said, and occasionally picked fights while under the influence. According to social media accounts, Mr. Camello started a Facebook group in 2011 to discuss prices of marijuana. Cool guy. Uh, but as high school friends matured and moved forward, Mr. Camello spiraled downwards. By adulthood, his drug habit had escalated into a serious problem. In an early conversation with detectives, Mr. Camello said Mr. Callie had told him to stay away from a young woman in the Callie family, the police said. Yet neighbors and friends did not recall hearing about a girlfriend or love interest. Mr. Camello's lawyer, Robert Gottlieb, said the young man became fascinated with QAnon and other far-right internet narratives involving Mr. Trump. Friends and family, Mr. Gottlieb said, described a noticeable and recent shift in Mr. Camello's personality as he fell deeper into digital rabbit holes. Quote, Something went very wrong here. The New York Post is also told by Camello's friends that he owns a, quote, secret Instagram account. Uh, it's at Real America's Voice underscore, which he uses to post pro-MAGA and QAnon images and commentary. The first post is on October 18th, 2018, and QAnon is mentioned the very next day. I cannot verify what the New York Post is claiming, but there does seem to be a focus on the same politicians that Camello later attempts to citizens arrest. There are also references to Staten Island, New York City, and a plethora of right-wing entities like Tucker Carlson and Turning Point USA. By the time March rolls around, Camello doesn't seem to be posting any caption text anymore, and Q-drops begin figuring prominently in his posts. 
He even uses hashtag MAGA forever, something he later writes on his palm before the court appearance. One of the final posts made on March 6th is a screen cap of a Q-drop that mentions, weirdly enough, The Godfather 3. After Camello's arrest, his family is understandably afraid of retaliation by the Gambino family. They pack their bags and get the fuck out of town. Neighbors posit that they've actually moved out permanently. The Camellos refuse to speak to the press. One of their more distant relatives, when door knocked by the press, tells them to, quote, take a walk. <laughs> Fucking love New Jersey. One thing is certain, the future is rocky for Anthony Camello. Joe Barone, an ex-member of the Bonanno family, is quoted by a Daily News article as saying, He must know his life is worth nothing. He doesn't have a chance in hell. It's a matter of time. Even if the wise guys don't get him, he'll get whacked by somebody looking to make a name. Callie's family refuses to share their home security footage with the police. Barone explains why that might be. That's a big message. We'll take care of this ourselves. In a Morning Call article by Maura Grunlund, an expert in organized crime says, quote, He's a dead man walking. He doesn't have much longer on this planet. The kid isn't even bothered by it. He's got no remorse. He just destroyed his whole family. It sounds like this kid is proud of himself because his name is in the record books forever for killing the acting boss of a Gambino crime family. He's in the history book. End quote. The article ends like this, quote, Frankie Boy avoided violence because he knew it would attract unwanted scrutiny to the Gambino family's illegal operations, which reportedly focused on peddling opioids such as heroin and oxycodone. Only time will tell what motivated Anthony Camello to get in his pickup truck and drive over to Francesco Cali's house, carrying out what I would call a driveway shooting. What I do like about this case is that a mob boss who oversaw a major drug operation and sold opioids to the masses was killed by a guy who had issues with OxyContin, among others. What I don't like about this case is that an addict with clear mental health issues was allowed to spiral down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole until he committed an irreversible act of murder which now puts his life, as well as the lives of his family, at risk. Anthony Camello is scheduled to appear in court again on Monday, the 25th of March. Godspeed. Goddamn. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. stunning. Yo, yeah, what, what's, I think what's especially amazing that this is, I think, the, the first clear incident of uh, QAnon getting a body count, you know? Yeah. It's like there was the case of Bucky Wolf, who was a QAnon follower who uh, killed his brother, but he had more serious and clear mental health issues. Um, this was, and he wasn't like repping QAnon as he was getting arrested. This is a guy who killed someone, not just someone, the boss of the Gambino crime family. And, um, and then now he's, and then, and then he's like proudly displaying his QAnon belief in court. Yeah. He clearly doesn't really understand the consequences of what he did. Cause I can't imagine he hates his family enough to want them to like have to look over their shoulders for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Yeah, he's clearly has that sort of disassociation that's common yeah. with QAnon believers. They don't understand the connection between yeah. what they do and like actual consequences. And that's because QAnon is is kind of inherently a disassociative conspiracy theory. Yeah. You need to become unglued from reality to even take it in. It is. It's like yeah, the, I mean the core of the conspiracy theory is like like nothing's look real, you know. It's like it's like the media's fake and everything's fake and every if even everything Trump does is fake to trick the cabal or whatever. And so it's just this sort of it creates this sort of a uh, uh, I think it's like you often talk about it's like a, a fugue state or whatever it's called. A fugue state, yeah. Fugue state, yeah. It's, a, it's this sort of like, yeah, disassociative episode. So he does really seem like that. Like he doesn't grasp the idea that, you know, what he did was was a bad, terrible thing to do and it's going to have serious consequences. Yeah, that's the thing is like we talk about body count here. Obviously, the first body is um, is Frankie Boy. 
But, you know, he's a fucking head of a mob comp. I mean, yeah. he's ordered murders multiple times, yeah. I'm sure. So it's like, yeah, I'm not going to cry about that. shed a tear for him. I don't think that's the end of the body count in this story because, uh, yeah, I think next up is Anthony and various family members and people that they think uh, will harm him if they kill them. Yeah, or or the people behind Q, you know, you think they're sweating a little bit. You think you think uh, oh, you, you know, think the, that they'll attack? Think, think, think the mafia is like who is this QAnon organization? Holy shit! Who's if the, the mafia, head of them? if the mafia takes a hit out on praying medic, yeah, right. I'm gonna fucking laugh so hard. Listen, if you are a legitimate Staten Island businessman, you're curious about these QAnon people. Hey, hit me up, and what you choose to do with this information is none of my concern. <laughs> yeah. If you want to read the QAnon book, and you're in construction in new jersey <laughs> yeah. reach out do you guys do you guys think that there's a, a, a possibility that this guy kind of failed up that he was just kind of driving around one night and you know maybe had a little bit too much to drink and rear-ended a car uh, the license plate fell off not he a went, chance he this was 100 percent premeditated it was yeah. so planned the footage they examined really clearly shows that he kind of like comes over he knows what house it is he does it on purpose then he uses that to get Frankie boy out of the house. A genius he, op. Yeah, very smart. He gives, apparently what really happened is he gave him, he, he hands him the license plate. Frankie boy then tosses the license plate into the back of his SUV thinking, okay, we're dealing with some dumb kid who fucking rear-ended my car. I'm not going to like, you know, do anything fucked up. And he didn't come out with a gun or anything. So he clearly wasn't scared. And, uh, but the kid knew exactly what he was doing At, right after he throws the, the license plate into the back of the SUV, the kid fucking pumps him full of like 10 bullets. I mean, silencer, silencer on the gun or, or I, no? I don't know. I, I, I did you, so. uh, do you have an erection? Uh, <laughs> a little bit of one. Hold on. Let me he, tuck. He loves his murder. Every time, every time murder is mentioned, Jake has I mean, to uh, rearrange his uh, the elastic of his sports shorts. My, uh, yeah, but they can't say anymore that the, the the QAnon followers are kind of fucking lazy, you know, lazy wannabe larpers. I mean, this dude is the real that, deal now. I mean, point. this yeah. guy he put ten in a mob boss and and like you know got in jail and fucking repped Q on his hand while he was doing it. I mean, You're right? This guy they should be talking about this guy. Yeah, I mean, it, he is he's what they all wish they could be but it's don't true. have the fucking balls to. this is why of course they distance themselves from him because mm -hmm. yeah i was just thinking about you know okay we we just talked about sending the QAnon book to the mob people assuming that they would read it and then strike out against QAnon. but what if someone in the mob got red pilled for QAnon and has the power to to take uh, out well, hits yeah, and shit oh my be, god well it would be. splinter the families yes yeah, and, and they would uh the red pilled <laughs> and blue pilled families yeah if QAnon takes down the five families in New York i'm going to laugh so fucking hard because the future is just exactly as we yeah, posited fuck, it i should have made my story about that damn it <laughs> you fucked up i fucked up JFK and the mob with Travis View now, the Gambino crime family doesn't really feature in the QAnon conspiracy theory narrative. Uh, so instead, I want to talk about the conspiracy theory that uh, organized crime was involved in the assassination of JFK. Yes. And uh, this, is, this is a classic one. And what's interesting about this theory is that the primary proponents aren't some kooks, right? This is the, the person who pushed this theory the most is G. Robert Blakey who is uh, currently a law professor and one of the most influential scholars of organized crime law. 
he drafted the RICO Act, uh, Title IX of the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970, which was signed into law by President Nixon. Whoa. Uh, Blakey was also chief counsel and staff director to the U.S. House Select Committee on Assassinations from 1977 to 79, which investigated the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Uh, he also helped draft the President uh, John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992. So this guy is as legit as it gets. Yeah, right? it sounds like it. Yeah. So what's more is that the House Select Committee of Assassinations opened up the possibility that individuals associated with organized crime might be involved. Uh, the committee report uh, says this. <clears throat> The committee believes, on the basis of the evidence available to it, that the National Syndicate of Organized Crime as a group was not involved in the assassination of President Kennedy, but that the available evidence does not preclude the possibility that individual members may have been involved. The committee actually named one organized crime boss in particular who should be well known to fans of JFK assassination conspiracy theories, Carlos Marcello, the boss of the New Orleans crime family. Here's what the committee report said. The committee found that Marcello had the motive, means, and opportunity to have President John F. Kennedy assassinated, though it was unable to establish direct evidence of Marcello's complicity. In the investigation of Marcello, the committee identified the presence of one critical evidentiary element that was lacking with the other organized crime figures examined by the committee, credible associations relating to both Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby to figures having a relationship, albeit tenuous, with Marcello's crime family or organization. So do you think like this is kind of like a domino effect thing where they planned every part? Like they planned Oswald, then they planned the killing of Oswald, then they planned Jack Ruby's death? Or Yeah, yeah. It's like it's, It sounds like, I mean... Really, really, the 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 evidence they said they said like, well, there's some there's some associations with associations between um, Jack Ruby and Oswald and Marcello. So yeah, it, the the way they make it sound like it's like it was like everything was planned out, like you know the killing yeah. and then and then Oswald's death soon after, mm -hmm. and uh, and it's an interesting story, but it doesn't really pan out as we'll see. So, uh, Carlos, uh, Carlos Marcello actually had, uh, an unpleasant run-in with the Kennedys years before the assassination. March 24th, 1959, Marcello appeared before the United States Senate's McClellan Committee investigating organized crime. Serving as chief counsel to the committee was Robert F. Kennedy. His brother, Senator John F. Kennedy, was a member of the committee. In response to committee questioning, Marcello invoked the Fifth Amendment and refused to answer any questions relating to his background, activities, and associates. From then on, the story goes, Marcello became an avowed enemy of the Kennedys. In uh, 1981, a Blakely co-authored a book advocating the theory that Marcello was behind the assassination. This book was called The Plot to Kill the President, Organized Crime Killed JFK. It was later published uh, in 1992 under the title Fatal Hour. What the fuck? That sounds like a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. <laughs> <laughs> in the book, the authors argue that Lee Harvey Oswald was involved, but that there was also at least one other gunman firing from the famous Grassy Knoll. We're just two lost souls sitting on a grassy knoll. Wish you were here. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what they basically assert. One, Oswald alone did shoot and kill JFK, as the Warren Commission deduced. Two, an unknown Confederate of Oswald's also shot the president, firing from the grassy knoll. This shot missed. Apart from the question of the number of assailants in the attack, Oswald acted as a tool of a much larger conspiracy. Four, 
The conspiracy behind Oswald was rooted in organized crime and was specifically provoked by JFK's anti-crime program. Singly or in some combination, prime suspects are Carlos Marcello and uh, Santos Traficante, godfathers respectively of the New Orleans and Tampa mafias. That's The word Traficante is like, in, in several of the romantic languages, is almost a direct translation of, like, trafficker. <laughs> it's yes, fucking right. amazing. What else, what else can you do with your life? Hey, you uh, mafia. Giuseppe Criminale. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Joey Oxycontin. <laughs> Joey Oxycontane. <laughs> Joey Oxycontane. Frederick Marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's quite a theory interesting though the book itself doesn't seem to provide any original evidence that wasn't already reviewed by the assassination committee the only real evidence of mafia involvement comes from fbi surveillance logs of organized crime figures they reveal that the mob very much hated the kennedys and you know so what that lots of people hate, hate the president yeah but like yeah it's a, they're a crime family of course they fucking hate like the yeah, head of the entire order yeah. like he's running the police and they, the yeah, army they see them as like like a like a rival clan you know it's like they, plus he's fucking irish of course they fucking oh, hated true. him that's dude true. but think about it, it's like yeah i wonder if jfk got points because he's catholic yeah. yes that is a good point sir yeah. <laughs> in fact uh, the authors of of uh, the plot to kill the president very late in the book concede that there is no direct evidence of their most interesting claims. Here's what the book says about FBI surveillance records of people associated with organized crimes. While our examination of the FBI surveillance logs for 11 months before and eight months after the assassination revealed the structure of organized crime in detail, at the same time indicating how much the Kennedys were hated by a powerful group of vicious men, we found no direct evidence of a plot to kill the president. There was no discussion before the event of specific trips by the president, much less the Dallas visit, nor was there any discussion of uh, contracting Oswald. No conversation had been made to obtain permission to kill the president or that such permission had been granted by the Organized Crime Commission. Can you imagine you're a hitman and they give you the envelope and you look, yeah, right. open it and it's just a picture of John <laughs> F. Kennedy? You're, you're like, like Fuck. You're like, ah, oh, Christ. <laughs> I'm going to get killed after this one, aren't yeah. I? <laughs> yeah. Barbano, why are you sending me on a suicide mission? Haven't I been good to you? Haven't I been loyal? <laughs> yeah, bear in mind, this book is literally called The Plot to Kill the President, and the book itself states, we found no direct evidence of a plot to kill the president. The plot to kill a president, all for a LARPO. Yeah. Was, it was it written by Seth Abramson, perchance? <laughs> Cheap shot. <laughs> Very much good shot. Good shot. So uh, in 1982, the Journal of Legal Education published a review of the book. Uh, that negative review, in part, says this. <clears throat> Once bold assertions and rhetorical declarations are put to the side, the plot to kill the president has only the acoustical evidence, such as it is, to lean securely upon. The rest of the evidence is but excited speculation. They're and, talking about the sound of what, yeah, the two yeah, shots? Talk about, talk about this, is, this is how they... The acoustical evidence is like how they determined that there was a second gunman. A lot of people, they say that uh, what people heard can only make sense if there was a second gunman on the grassy knoll. This is sort of like the, the they lean upon to establish that. But but how could you how could it be acoustical evidence if it's just like what people think they heard? I mean, it's in the middle of like watching the president get shot. Your your memory is going to be shitty. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's not great. In fact, I, I would argue that a skeptic might ask might have some problems with the general narrative that any high-level mafia figure uh, was directly involved with Kennedy's ass assassination. 
Uh, for example, organized crime famously wants as little attention from the feds as possible, and assassinating the president would achieve the exact opposite of that. Correct. And also, yeah, like if unless there's like a huge emergency or something like, and he's about to do something to those families, but yeah, it didn't right. seem like that was the case at the That's time. That's true. Yeah. Well, there are there are a handful of examples of the mafia killing like low level politicians, such as like, you know, like uh, mayors and like uh, smaller towns. There doesn't seem to be any kind of history of assassinating high level elected officials. Someone might also ask why the mob, who are famously distrustful of outsiders, would choose to partner with Lee Harvey Oswald, an unstable loner who had previously defected to the Soviet Union, had multiple voluntary contacts with the FBI to car carry out the assassination of a president. You know, like when, when they choose who the who would uh, you know help with a robbery or something, they only pick family members who, who they know can can pick a low profile and keep their mouth shut if they get arrested. But for this, like you know, the greatest conspiracy of all time, they pick Oswald. It doesn't doesn't really make sense. Although, if Camello ends up being a weird hit, then maybe they do yeah. like weird psychotic loners. Oh, good yeah. point. Yeah, I'm not alone in my skepticism. The uh, House Select uh, Committee on Assassinations declined to conclude that Marcello was involved in the assassination because, number one, there's no evidence of it, and number two, because uh, a president's presidential assassination was wildly out of character for Marcello. Here's what the uh, committee report said. Marcello's uniquely successful career in organized crime has been based in, to a large extent on the policy of prudence. He is not reckless. As with the case of the Soviet and Cuban governments, a risk analysis indicated that he would be unlikely to undertake so dangerous a course of action as a presidential assassination. If they bring no new evidence to the table, why do they think their version of events is so convincing? Basically, they believe it because it makes for a good story. In fact, they devote the entire concluding chapter of their book to a discussion of Greek drama. They say, quote, inherent to the classic Greek view would insist on the need for purpose, a meaning behind the event, a conspiracy, end quote. You read this book, didn't you? Yeah. And there... <laughs> <laughs> what a fucking rube. What a, what a Jack Ruby. Yeah, man, man, you got to learn, you got to learn the, uh, the Rakatansky way where you read... Cliff the, notes. Yeah, first line, second line, last line. Boom, you know the book. Not, not about the Hillary book. By the way, we've had fans ask... I know, I'm, I'm making my way through it, don't worry. It's, it's, <laughs> what, where are you in it? I'm like page 240. Holy shit. So close to halfway through. Oh, no right. wonder you've been blackout drunk. <laughs> oh, I'll, 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 reserve my, I'll reserve my feelings about it for the episode. But In the pursuit of a purposeful meaning for the assassination, they say that Kennedy was killed because, as a former senator, he associated with people who themselves associated with organized crime, such as Frank Sinatra, and had slept with a woman, Judith Campbell, who was later to sleep with uh, Sam uh, Giancarna. So wait, so they're saying that these, he's yeah. saying that these two are Eskimo uh, yeah. brothers, yeah, and that yeah. that somehow would make you want to kill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone this, knows that's a code of honor between two men. Yeah, yeah. Saying, yeah. The former friends, but uh, Blakey suggests calls for Kennedy's death. They say, "quote From the mob's point of view, Kennedy had been compromised. He had crossed the line. In the Greek sense, the liaison with Judas Campbell was, we came to believe, Kennedy's fatal flaw." the error in judgment for which the gods would demand their due. Wait, they're saying that the mob thought the president was 
compromised? Like what? That he like, had become well, anti-crime? Like, 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 like dishonor. You can't. There's something dishonorable about sleeping with Judith Campbell. It's like I don't. I don't. I was like I. I don't understand. There's weird Italian yeah. court of honor. By by the don't way, they, I, I just want to say. I just wanted to thank the Italian-American community for their many contributions to our culture, sports, arts, the science. Fuck that. They're all criminals. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Don't do this shit. No. Don't do apologist bullshit. Uh, also, uh, I, I do believe that uh, the Campbell thing is just uh, the Italians don't understand uh, prima noctissimo. <laughs> they all but confess that they're attracted to this theory because it creates a coherent, satisfying narrative, basically. Really, I like. I, I personally don't find the conspiracy theory that Kennedy assassination was a mob hit uh, very convincing, despite the fact that it comes from someone who has a lot of credibility. But I will take this as a case study of how falling prey to baseless conspiracy theories isn't something that only uneducated or emotionally fragile people do. Conspiracy theorizing is just like a natural thing that like people do to make sense of the world. You know, sometimes we just need these coherent stories of super powerful evil, evil organizations, such as the mob in this instance, to make sense of tragic events and circumstances. Because the idea that horrible things just happen for no sensible reason is just too hard to process. I want to end with something uh, I read from G. Robert Blakey that reminded me of QAnon, specifically the theory, which is held by many QAnon followers, that JFK Jr. is alive and he's working with Q Team to help take his revenge against the deep state for assassinating his father. While researching my section, I came across an interview that Blakey gave to the Las Vegas Sun in 2012. The interviewer asked Blakey what uh, were some of the more interesting things he had heard from the FBI surveillance of the mafia when they spoke about JFK. Blakey mentioned something he heard from the Philadelphia crime boss, Angelo Bruno. And here's what Blakey told the interviewer. There is one conversation in Philadelphia where assassination is mentioned, and Angelo Bruno says, no, no, we don't do that. And he tells the old Sicilian story about what happens when you take a prince out. You get his son, and the son is worse than the prince. Damn. Wait, so then the son of JFK, so JFK Jr. is JFK worse Jr. than JFK? Is worse. Oh! <laughs> I can't believe JFK Jr. became the president after JFK was killed. That's yeah. such a weird monarchist well, turn of events. Yeah, well, he became he became oh. the secret president. Right, right. yeah, He's a secret president well, who's yeah. been president for 40 he years. Was, he was controlling the government from inside a Trump he, fan. Yeah, he is the deep state. He <laughs> is the deep state. Uh, the yeah. good version of it. Do you think he went so deep that he forgot he was JFK Jr. in the first place? Yeah, now he thinks he's Robert Fusca. Now he just thinks he's a guy who goes around like uh, fucking uh, Republican conventions trying to sell like, you know, four-year-old Lugs. caps. And <laughs> $40 yeah. hats. Yeah. <laughs> he fucking tricked her into paying 40 when he said 30 at first. You know what? Maybe he is part of the mob. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah pretty great. Is. Nah, I never said that. <laughs> nah, I never said that. What are you talking about? 40 bucks. I've mentioned it on the show a couple times before, uh, but I do I do work in the entertainment industry, and through a couple uh, close contacts, uh, thank you, you know who you are, um, I was able to get uh, 10 pages from the latest Godfather movie. That's they are actually they're working on they're working on a fourth movie. Yeah. Um. And uh, they are trying to incorporate actually uh, real news that's happened uh, with yeah. the mafia. 
and um, I, I was able to to get uh, 10 pages from the first draft. This uh, was leaked by North Koreans again, right? This was leaked by the North Koreans, passed along to me through an intermediary. <laughs> um, and so uh, without further ado, I bring you uh, 10 pages uh, from The Godfather 2019. They rebooted it? It's rebooted. Exterior. Salminios. Staten Island. Night. We're hovering above a small, dimly lit Italian restaurant. Old street lights line the quiet neighborhood, illuminating the gusts of rain as they pour from the dark clouds above. A sleek black Mercedes-Benz crawls to a stop on the sidewalk, flanking the entrance to the restaurant. Four men exit the vehicle and survey the scene before opening the back door. Stephen Crea, 71, with thinning white hair and a large overcoat, exits the car. The four men surround him, guarding Crea as he walks towards the entrance of the restaurant. A doorman, 22, nervously opens the front door, and all six men disappear inside. Interior, Salminios, continuous. Stephen Crea removes his overcoat and hands it to the doorman. Tracking shot. The camera follows Crea as he walks through a near-empty restaurant. The handful of patrons dining there look down at their meals, afraid to look the boss in the eye. We follow Crea as he walks through the main floor and through the kitchen. A couple kitchen staff members bow their heads out of respect. Bless you, Don Crea. Don Crea, my mother, she's a sick. Two of men's... <laughs> Two of Crea's men lunge at the prep cook, grabbing him by the neck and slamming his head repeatedly into a door of a nearby freezer. Crea waves his hand and the men relax. Oh my God. He stares for a beat at the prep cook's bloodied face. Don Crea to one of his men. Giovanni, see to it that this man is given a donation of... He thinks for a beat. Two hundred dollars. Then to the cook. For your mother. The prep cook falls to his knees, grasping at the Don's finely tailored wool pants. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, my family will remember this blessing forever. The you, Don, know, you tried to make uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the offense against the Italian-American community lesser. <laughs> yeah. Travis, I think we can yeah. agree that we're way past that point. You're right. <laughs> the Don tips his hat and exits the kitchen. Interior, Salminio's VIP room, continuous. Don Crea finally reaches a large black room with a long square table located at the center. Sitting around the table are the four other family bosses flanked by their capos who stand quietly a few feet back from the table. The VIP room is straight out of the 1930s. Frail, elderly waiters sporting brilliant white tuxedos glide silently to and from the table. At the head of the pack is an ancient Don Corleone, 95, with a pencil-thin mustache and holding a long cigar. Are they doing that CGI thing like with Princess Leia? Uh-huh. I think so. <laughs> yeah? Okay. A cloud of stagnant smoke hangs in the air. Pending budget. Corleone speaks. Don Crea, he motions to an empty chair. Please, sit down. Crea waddles over to the seat, and one of his capos pulls the chair out for him. He sits. It's clear by everyone's expressions that the nature of the gathering is a solemn one. A skinny man in his 60s, Laborio Belomo, taps the ash of his cigar into a nearby ashtray. Wait, is that a, a name you made up? No, these are all real. These are all the heads of the five families. I looked I it up. It. I mean, whoever wrote this whoever wrote this must have done their research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not going to get in trouble here. Uh, <clears throat> Thank you, Don Corleone, for hosting this historic meeting. I wish it was under better circumstances. Corleone nods his head. Today we are here to discuss the senseless violence that has shaken our community. 
gathered here are the bosses of the five families of New York. He gestures his hand across the table. Michael Mancuso of the Bonanno family. The camera pans across the table, lingering on Michael Mancuso, 64, a balding man with dark, piercing eyes. Laborio Balomo of the Genovese family. The camera pans past Laborio. He nods his head slowly as he takes a long drag off his cigar. Stephen Crea of the Lucchese family. Crea cracks his knuckles and lays his hands down on the table in front of him. And Salvatore De Laurentiis, acting boss of the Gambino family. The camera pauses at Salvatore De Laurentiis, 60s, a short, rotund man covered in moles. <laughs> Wait, is this, is this the actual new boss now that uh, yeah. Callie's dead? Yeah, this is the acting boss. <clears throat> uh, covered in moles. He's tapping away on his iPhone. One second, Doc. <laughs> I'm almost finished. Corleone, Corleone looks perplexed. Salvatore makes a couple more keystrokes. There, posted. The whole room looks at him, completely silent. Sorry, I was uh, I was taking a quiz on the internet to see which Game of Thrones character I was. He holds up his phone proudly. Jon Snow. The other Dons raise their eyebrows and direct their eyes down at their plates. Corleone continues. We honor the loss of Frankie Kelly. Salvatore, I'm sure I speak for the rest of these here five families when I say my condolences. The other mob bosses nod and grumble. Salvatore scans the room, unsure. Uh, <clears throat> I was uh, I was told that there would be uh, some sort of meal served. Uh, normally, I would keep my big mouth shut, but I, I it's nearly 11 p.m. and all I've had were a handful of cashews and a half of an egg. Corleone wins. What? Cor <laughs> 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 you oh fuck. Uh, okay. I didn't know this was supposed to be a comedy. <clears throat> Corleone waves to one of the waiters who signals to the rest of the waitstaff. Large plates of pasta, lasagna, prime rib, and fresh steamed lobsters are brought out on giant silver trays. None of that is Italian food. Salvatore reaches in his pocket. Do you fucking lobster? Shut up. Sal Do you even know what Italians eat? Salvatore reaches in his pocket, pulls out a stained bib, and ties it around his neck. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> He reaches for a lobster tail, cracking it in half and slurping the tender meat from the shell. Hot juices spray onto the sleeves and lapels of the Don sitting next to him. They do not look pleased. Corleone continues. On March 13th, Frankie was killed outside of his home in Staten Island. As far as we know, this was an unauthorized hit. And I've called upon you, the five families, in an effort to prevent further unnecessary violence. Mancuso finally speaks up. Gracious Don Corleone, thank you for inviting us here today to get to the bottom of what I am certain is a misunderstanding. I assure you, the Banano family had nothing to do with this horrible deed. Laborio jumps in, quick to impress Corleone. Don Corleone, I've had some of my guys look into this scumbag. Does he belong to a family? No, Don Corleone. He pledges his allegiance to someone called Q. <laughs> Corleone rubs his chin, thinking for a minute. He looks over at some of the other bosses. What is he, some kind of a spook? We don't know. Some schmuck on the internet claims he's executive level clearance, but every article I've read about him says it's one big hoax. 
Kraya explodes out of his seat, slams a fat fist on the table, rattling the plates and glasses. Schmuck on the internet? A hoax? I got guys getting worked over on 32nd Street by Gambino boys thinking we wet their guy. Gentlemen, gentlemen, please calm down. Kraya quickly sits back in his seat. Salvatore, do you have any idea who might have been upset with your cousin? All eyes are on Salvatore. He takes a large gulp of wine and wipes his chin with a napkin. Not really, no. <laughs> is, this, is this accent based on anything? No. Okay. You've never heard this guy speak, right? I mean, the, the writer of the script of Godfather 2019. Yeah, no, he hasn't. Yeah. <clears throat> Salvatore goes back to his meal. Don Corleone speaks again. So this Q, how do we know this person is who he claims to be? Laborio jumps in. My guys tell me uh, he can be identified uh, by a string of numbers. Mancuso tosses his arms into the air. So what is this guy's letters and numbers? Laborio lowers his head, ashamed. Nobody knows. Nobody knows who every. <laughs> Nobody knows who he works for. All we know is the kid wrote some shit on his hand at the hearing. Got everyone this side of the Hudson spooked. Crea shakes his head. He's obviously signaling to his people. Then realizing, what if they're coming for us? Stephen Crea begins to gather himself. Don Corleone waves his hand, silencing the room. He glances towards Salvatore who is watching a YouTube video on his phone, propped up against his messy plate. Salvatore. Mm-hmm. Corleone motions to the phone. Do us a favor. Type Q into that fancy device of yours and tell us old timers, what do you see? Salvatore picks up his phone and makes a few swipes and keystrokes. Okay, let's see what we got here. Oh, whoops, there's my camera. <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> he bursts into laughter. The other bosses look confused. Sorry, I read a funny tweet. The bosses, <laughs> the bosses bury their heads in their hands. Okay, all right. I'm seeing lots of skulls. Okay, pictures of skulls. Some of the bosses look worried. Okay, now I'm seeing stuff about Jesus for some reason. Everyone in the room crosses themselves, kissing the gold crucifixes hanging across their necks. Okay, now I'm seeing, like, uh, T-shirts, candles, stickers, a lot of capital letters, a lot of flags. Design works decent. Eh, seems pretty harmless. The atmosphere in the room relaxes a bit. Corleone again waves his hand. Hmm, well, perhaps this has been a great misunderstanding. Perhaps this cue isn't a threat after all. No sooner do the words leave his mouth, two beams of light gleam through the windows of the restaurant. Some of the mob bosses stagger up from their chairs, shielding their eyes. Everyone is on high alert. A voice calls from outside. Come out here and fight me, you fucking pedos! <laughs> Everyone looks around wildly, scared and confused. Corleone brushes some food off of his jacket and lumbers over to the window. Peering through the blinds, he can make out a man in his late 50s standing in front of a pickup truck sporting multiple American flags. All the capos and lieutenants draw their weapons and aim them at the restaurant windows. The man shouts again, Surrender the children! <laughs> blam, 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 blam! The men with the guns unload a hail of bullets shattering the restaurant windows. Then, silence. The heads of the five families move slowly towards the pulverized windows, broken glass crunching beneath their heavy feet with each step. About ten feet through the non-existent windows in front of them is the man. He's slumped against his truck, dead. Taped to the window of his truck, 
on a three-hole punch piece of computer paper was a sign that read, Q sent me. Corleone wipes his hands on the front of his jacket. No, we're even. The music swells as the camera pulls back through the gaping holes in the side of the restaurant. The doorman we saw earlier flips the sign in the door from open to closed. Smashed to black. End of scene. If you're listening and you may be related to one of the five families, please understand we did not write this. This was written by, you know... This is some screenwriter... Some screenwriter, they won't, I don't even know who it is. I'm assuming they're getting Michael Buble in there to write it. Yeah, I don't even know who it is. This was just passed to me. There are watermarks yeah. all over it, so. It's probably a collaboration between Michael Buble and the Ultimate Warrior. Yeah. That's yeah, what I would. That's, I've heard, I've heard Ultimate Warrior is working on it. I've heard, <laughs> I've heard that um, they are working right now on getting a second draft completed. Yeah, and it's going to be anime, right? It's going to be anime. It's going to be kind of watercolors. Watercolor anime, yeah. And um, yeah, it's slated. All I know right now is that uh, it is slated for a 2023 release. It's called Godfather 2019. (laughs) You fucking moron. You absolute dunce. (laughs) Oh, fuck. Well, Um, duh, because the events, the events that take place that kick off this mafia war, um, you know... They they started in 2019, and so that's why the film is probably called Godfather 2019. A postmortem of our interview with James Brower, featuring Julian Field. So last week we interviewed James Brower, a.k.a. Dreamcatcher. Travis uh, described him as a, quote, volunteer for the Massachusetts Trump campaign who was later involved in a pro-Trump get-out-the-vote campaign called MAGA3X. After the election of Donald Trump, he continued to participate in social media campaigns designed to help the Trump administration. So my intention in this postmortem of our interview of James Brower is to examine the claims he made on the show and verify their plausibility. The first claim that Brower made, of course, was that in October 2017, working in collaboration with others, he authored and posted the very first Q-drop on 4chan. He indicated during the interview that his posts were always demarcated by the ID EKA50M1K, and that he refused to accept responsibility for any Q-drops outside of those. So, I want to assume that this claim is true and examine whether it is consistent with other claims that Brower made in his interview. When asked why he started QAnon, Brower made two claims. The first is that he was shocked by the Unite the Right rally, which saw neo-Nazis and white supremacists commit multiple acts of violence, including the murder of Heather Hayers by one of the rally-goers. The second is that he created QAnon in response to the community's alleged disgust and overall feeling of deflation in the aftermath of Charlottesville. Brower's purported goals? To improve morale and to change the conversation away from Charlottesville in hope of stopping the MAGA movement from descending into full-blown white nationalism. So I looked up the post labeled with the ID Brower gave us, and let's see if what he writes supports the claims. So, were Brower and his ilk really shocked by Charlottesville? As a reminder, some of the central chants of the Unite the Right rally were, quote, you will not replace us, which they used interchangeably with Jews will not replace us. And another was blood and soil, which is a direct translation of the Nazi chant, Blut und Boden. If this kind of anti-Semitic sentiment was disliked by Brower, it certainly wasn't apparent in the posts he made two months later. The very first Q-drop he claims to have authored on October 29th contained blatant anti-Semitic dog whistles. In them, Brower mentions Soros and the Rothschild family as part of a, quote, evil, corrupt network of players. Both are mainstays of far-right anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. 
these dog whistles seem to paint a picture of someone who is at the very least comfortable with anti-Semitism. But what about racism? At Unite the Right rally, they chanted, quote, the South will rise again and white lives matter, both white supremacist sentiments. But in one of his cue drops, Brower echoes Dinesh D'Souza's claim that the Democrats are the party responsible for slavery and the KKK. Brower further claims that he was not aware of Trump's racism before the election, something he would have objected to on a moral level. Brower even claims to have been disgusted when Trump ended DACA, saying that people in his own community were DACA recipients. But if this were true, why would Brower mention MS-13 in his Q-drops? He makes the outrageous claim that the Democrats used the Hispanic gang as a hit squad. If you recognize the gang's name, it's because MS-13 is often used as an argument to enforce brutal anti-immigrant policies and scare the population into fearing Central and South Americans. And did Brower really not know that Trump paid the Daily News to publish an open letter calling for the execution of five black teenagers known as the Central Park Five? Teenagers that were later cleared of all wrongdoing? Trump himself brought it up during his campaign, claiming in a CNN interview that they were guilty. It seems very unlikely that when he made the Q-drops, Brower was in any way disturbed by racism or white supremacist sentiments. It also seems unlikely that Brower wasn't aware of Trump's consistently racist actions in public statements. So perhaps when he described his shock, Brower meant the death of Heather Hayers at the hands of white supremacist James Fields, who also injured more than a dozen people by driving his car into a crowd of left-wing protesters. But if that really bothered Brower, it wasn't apparent in his posts. In one of his Q-drops, he clearly positions Antifa as the enemy, reinforcing the idea that Antifa and Heather Hayers were on the wrong side of the argument when they protested the Unite the Right rally. This reads like an attempt to stoke hatred against Antifa and the left in general, and it comes only two months after Charlottesville. You'll notice that none of this evidence contradicts Brower's claim that he was trying to change the conversation after Charlottesville and drum up MAGA morale. Those both seem highly likely. However, I do believe the Q-drops disprove Brower's claims that he was bothered by racism, anti-Semitism, or even the harming and killing of left-wing figures. Like I said during the interview, the launching of QAnon seems more akin to a PR stunt designed to make people forget about Charlottesville without having to address the ideological roots that led to Heather Heyer's death. Brower, during the interview, also claimed that he meant his Q-drops as questions that would invite research. But Brower's very first drop states, these people are evil which certainly seems like a definitive statement designed to stoke fear and hatred. Another claim made by Brower is that Q did not have religious overtones in its early days. This is contradicted by Brower's Q-drop, which states, quote, these people worship Satan. Seems like stoking old-fashioned satanic panic among Christians to me. He also ties this accusation with another, that missing children in Haiti are connected to Comey, Hillary, and Obama. These claims are actually part of a pre-existing far-right conspiracy theory that posits these political figures are involved in the trafficking, sexual assault, and murder of Haitian children as part of satanic rituals. Obviously this is false, and Brower probably knew it at the time. Later in the interview, Brower claims that he dislikes the way Trump has encouraged his supporters to ignore the media and use the president as their only source of information. If that were the case, why would Brower, more than one year into Trump's presidency, make mention in his Q-drops of, quote, Project Mockingbird, a reference used to build the QAnon belief that the entire mainstream media is fed news directly by the CIA? It's clearly an attempt to drive a further wedge between Trump supporters and the mainstream media. For more information about this aspect of the QAnon conspiracy theory, you can listen to our Mockingbird Media episode. To reiterate, Brower's Q-drops seem consistent with his claims that he started QAnon to reignite the Trump base and change the conversation away from Charlottesville. What does not seem consistent with the Q-drops are Brower's claims of disliking anti-Semitism, racism, anti-immigrant sentiment, and the use of violence against the left. I posit that his Q-drops reveal James Brower's motivation for starting QAnon were to whitewash the rise of neo-Nazi and white nationalist groups. Brower in the Q-drops seems eager to shift this attention onto more convenient targets—Jewish people, black people, Democrats, and immigrants.
So until now, we have operated under the assumption that Brower was not lying about starting QAnon, nor about which posts he authored. Even if you believe the first, the second seems a lot less likely. That's because by November 2nd, 2017, the posts with Brower's ID cease entirely. This would mean that he lost control of QAnon or interest in posting within five days of its inception. So what are my reasons for even carrying out this postmortem? Well, after re-listening to last week's episode, it struck me. Families that have been deported, children who have been abused and killed in detention centers, the people who've been murdered by white nationalists, none of them will ever get a chance to reform their image on our podcast. All of their lives are either damaged or over. The MAGA trolls, including Brower, often targeted the most vulnerable in society or sought to undercut any agent of positive change. In conclusion, it is my opinion that James Brower deformed the truth or outright lied to us multiple times during the interview. Based on my research, I do not think his description of his intentions and moral framework are trustworthy. Even if his current goal really is to curtail QAnon and the white nationalist movement, this does not wash his hands of what he's done so far, and it certainly doesn't repair the damage him and others have already done. Now, this is not to say that James is incapable of good acts or even redemption. I believe it's possible to change. However, I don't like the idea that our podcast might be used to whitewash the history of the MAGA movement and the early days of QAnon. His multiple inaccuracies, all seemingly in favor of James's reputation, seem to indicate that he is not ready yet to be completely honest about the movements he worked for and helped create. Travis, you have the podium. I really appreciate the, that you went over that the, genuinely, and I really think it, it's important to sort of uh, sort of remember that the kind the people who are most affected by this kind of disinformation and. Um, and uh, this this irrational hatred and scapegoating. We talk about talk about a lot, but yeah, but real people do get hurt by this kind this this kind of propaganda. Even though most of the things in the interview didn't bother me, what did bother me was the idea itself of platforming someone like that, and the fact that he right. did multiple times in describing his intentions seem to try to basically paint a better picture for himself, which would allow for a public uh, kind of redemption. You know, using our podcast as a conduit and that was the place where i was like i actually don't feel comfortable with that i want to sure. make sure that I, I take a look because hey i could have checked and it could have all checked out the right. ones with his id could have just not contained anti-semitic shit not yep. contained religious stuff it was bad and then but in the end his posts are very much doing the exact dog whistles two months after charlottesville that stoked charlottesville in the first place right i think that there is a and this is Based on what I've I saw on the the Donald message boards and and you know some of the other pro Trump sort of rallying rallying sites um, that I I you know lurked in um, just out of curiosity and what what I saw in a lot of ways was a not necessarily an outright endorsement of racist and what I mean sometimes there were. But what seemed more prevalent to me was a a general uh, desensitization. Right. Yeah. That like that, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I agree. I think that there is on the right and among MAGA circles a kind of inability to connect what they say and do to any real life consequences, and so they attack people like, um, for example, the uh, Parkland students. And right. now we've had two suicides. Yeah. And uh, they continue to stoke anti-Muslim sentiment. And then 51 people are murdered at Christchurch. So if you're part of the uh, if you're part of the general ecosystem feeding and pushing for these things, blood is partially on your hands. I yeah I I look I agree. Um, I also and I think we probably differ a little bit on this. Um, even if 
the intentions are bad, even if they're still bad and and the only intention is to save face and have some kind of redemption, even if you don't believe it, but putting out onto on, onto social media and onto the internet that, you know, you disavow and you want uh, boards like 8chan banned and you, you know, you say no, look, I think that's still a net positive. If we it have is. if we have ex Trump supporters who are going on the internet and 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 posting to their follow people who are following them and saying, "Hey, I changed my mind. I disavow this shit. Yeah. Uh, I want to ban 8chan." Like I almost don't care what the intention is behind it because the message every time But there a, are two things here, Jake. Yes. It's, on one side there's what he's doing now. Yes. And on the other side there's him coming on the podcast and describing his intentions ranging back two, sometimes three years. And that's where I have an issue. Of I'm not course. trying to say that he's of not course. doing a good thing in trying to deplatform HN and not doing a good thing in kind of reconsidering the results of the MAGA movement and, and saying that white supremacy is wrong. I'm saying at the same time as doing that, he's also trying to rehabilitate his image in ways that are, for me, slightly dishonest. If he's willing yes. to accept the true nature of his original Q-drops and the true nature of what the MAGA movement stood for, then I am willing to hear him out again. I kind of take issue with sort of the idea that he's coming on this, this podcast uh, to deceive people to re rehabilitate his image. Because because if I he, think it's just the result of how he feels about those things. Right, right. Because it's not an intention. If, 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 if he was yeah. if he was interested, because what he did was that he confessed to sparking a, a far right wing conspiracy theory that's harming people and everyone hates. That's not a reputation building claim to make about yourself. So taken in a vacuum, I think that his claim about QAnon are fine and that his approach to 8chan is fine mm -hmm. and uh, that, that his approach to decrying white supremacy, all those things are fine. Yeah, I, However, the other thing also happened. Yeah. And I wanted to address that. Yes, yes, yes. I, 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 I totally get that. You, you, you take issue with the, uh, with the watering down of the, of the content that exactly. was, that was initially posted and, and how it was represented and, mm -hmm. and how it is discussed from this moment in time. And, and I, I get that. And I, I, I think that's it's, fair. It's basically like saying, yes, I did take the cookie from the cookie jar, but my brother told me to do it. Yeah. You know, so it's like, yes, you're admitting to the thing, but then you're also like softening the blow of what that means about about specifically the Trump supporter and MAGA movement. He, I believe that consciously or not, he tried to whitewash what the original MAGA movement meant and say, no, I wasn't like, I didn't know there was racist. I didn't know there was redlining. I didn't know right. any of that stuff. I have DACA friends. Well, then why a year into the Trump presidency and after he rolled back DACA. Are you still making MS-13 references? These these were clearly uh, um, uh, racist dog whistles, anti-Semitic dog whistles, and and these sorts of like the exactly how bad they were were not directly addressed or reckoned with. Right, right, right. That's, that's all. Fair. That's all because I think we had him on for one reason, and he ended up talking about other reasons mm -hmm. or other things. And yeah, I just wanted to check those out. Uh, again, uh, James, I'm, I know that you're a listener. This is not an attack on you personally, but I do refuse to kind of allow for uh, a cleaning up of what MAGA meant to begin with and what Trump's campaign involved. I think, yeah, I think that he didn't even, I mean, he himself just said that he, he feels like he was fleeced yeah, and he was blinded. Fleeced. And sure. this is, I think, common of people who come down off of the red pill. However, he says he was fleeced because Trump didn't do anything to make the economy better. One of the reasons he said he was fleeced was like, oh, one of my friends, like small businesses is closed. 
and then he brings that. So that's one thing, right? Right. If if Trump is not profiting his majority white community, mm. that's something he doesn't like. However, he seems a year in still totally comfortable with all the rest of the shit. Mm-hmm. I think that if you do not study historical racism, anti-Semitism, like I, I never did before we started this podcast, and now memes memes that I saw on the Donald, you know, two years ago that, you know, I wouldn't have thought anything of, I now see these undertones that are part of a bigger piece of history exactly. and a bigger thing. Now, do I think he regrets it? I, I don't think he's lying about that. I don't think, I don't think in general he lied about what he's trying to do now and how different that is from before. Yeah. But I think he's kind of still in denial about the things that he ignored or allowed to have happened and oh, that had big consequences. Of course, man. Those are ugly things. Nobody nobody wants to yeah. nobody wants to admit these ugly things about themselves. Like it's tough. It, it, it's tricky. I, I, I think I, it's I, absolutely I, worth having this discussion. I, I, and, I, yeah, and I, I don't regret having getting, him on. Yeah. Me but too. I wanted to have this post discussion because there were th- some things to process that we weren't able to catch live in the interview. Right. This has been the QAnon Anonymous podcast. We don't advertise on our show. We are supported entirely by our listeners. You can go to patreon.com slash QAnon Anonymous and subscribe for $5 a month and get access to all of our premium episodes. This allows us to progress towards financial independence for the show, which currently is not our main job, unfortunately, uh, but it's what we're aiming for. And you can help us by heading over to Patreon and subscribing. Thank you for helping us towards our goal of being 100% financially and editorially independent. You can follow us on Twitter at QAnon Anonymous. And for the hosts, it's at Julian Field, that's F-E-E-L-D, at Real Rockatansky, and at Travis underscore View. Listener, until next week, may the deep dish bless you and keep you. It's not a conspiracy, it's fact. I always look for symbolism. Like I say, this, this, is, a, this is spiritual warfare, and I always look for signs from God that the rest are really happening, and... President Trump is taking on the pedophiles and all these things are happening. And, you know, the other day I walked outside yesterday, I walked outside and a swarm of butterflies there. They weren't monarch butterflies, but they look like monarch butterflies. Just like that, literally thousands of them fluttered around me. And there's been actually a lot of stories written about this in the local press here in California, but because there's been so much rain this season, there's like a record number of butterflies migrating um, from Mexico. And so there's just butterflies everywhere and they look just like the monarch butterfly. Well, the CIA's mind control program was called Project Monarch after the monarch butterfly. So when I saw all these butterflies flying around the other day, and and you can still see them, they're everywhere here. It's... It's so beautiful to see. I'm like, thank you, God. That That is God's way of showing me and the world that that the, the monarch slaves, the monarch abuse victims, they're being freed. They're being freed. That's what, that's what I believe that means. That's what I believe that means. That's what I believe that means.